You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. David Grin is the author of Killers of the Flower Moon and The Lost City of Z. Killers of the Flower Moon was a finalist for the National Book Award and won an Edgar Allan Poe Award. He's also the author of The White Darkness and the collection The Devil and Sherlock Holmes. His new book is The Wager. Thank you for joining me, David. That's my pleasure. At the beginning, you begin this book with a a fantastic uh, epigraph that actually I think really explains what the whole book is about in which you say you quote Mary McCarthy we are the hero of our own story and this gets straight to the idea that humans are a narrative species we define ourselves with story and this is an amazing story in which story itself is a big character. It's about the battle between two stories of a series of incidents that are themselves almost unbelievable. Talk about just discovering this story in, in your search through history, looking for things to write about and stories to tell. Yeah. So, you know, I think like a, a lot of people, I, you know, this was back in 2016 and 2017. I was watching a lot of what was happening in the world with the fraying of our civil institutions and our battles over truth and our wars over history. And then, to, and I was trying to find a way to write about these themes. Um, and then, lo and behold, in an archive, I discovered this journal, journal which led me back into the 18th century to try to get at these themes. And it was then when I learned that, you know, this little castaway boat had washed up onto the shore of Brazil. And on board were these 30 men who were almost wasted to the bone. And they announced that they were the survivors of his majesty's ship, the Wager. And they had been shipwrecked on a desolate island for months. And after building this flimsy craft, they had traveled some 3,000 miles. Um, uh, to safety. And so they were hailed for their ingenuity and bravery. That was the story they told. Then, and that would have been the story that might have been the only story we knew. But then several months later, another little boat washed ashore. This one even smaller, more battered. This on the other side of South America, on the Chilean side of Patagonia. And on board this little boat were three men who were in even worse condition. One officer was so, uh, you know, it was so delirious. He couldn't even recollect his own name. But after they recovered, they told a very different story. And they leveled the shocking allegation that those people who had gone to Brazil first, those guys aren't heroes at all. They're actually mutineers. And then it soon became clear that while stranded on this island, they had descended into this Lord of the Flies with warring factions and mutinies and murders. And then back in England, when several of the castaways get there, they are summoned to face a court martial for their alleged crimes. 
And so that is what unleashes these warring stories as they each try to tell their story, hoping to prevail, to persuade the admiralty and the public. And there's there's the, um, the McCarthy quote, which you gave is so great. And there's another wonderful quote, which I didn't include in the book, but was on my mind, which was, there's a quote from Joan Didion who says, we all tell ourselves stories in order to live. But in their case, it's quite literally true because if they do not tell a convincing tale after everything they've been through, they could be hanged. And so as they wage war and there's disinformation and misinformation, there's a battle over history. I found in this strange story, this little, you know, is a crazy gripping adventure survival story, one of the most astonishing ones I've ever come across. But it is this weird parable for our own turbulent times. You know, that's really interesting because taking a look at a different genre, completely science fiction, one of, one of the authors once told me, he says, science fiction isn't about the future. N nobody can predict the future. And if they try to, it all generally turns out badly. Science fiction is about predicting the present. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, and I think yes. the same t is true with history. You are giving us an amazing history that is all factual and all backed up by competing journals, but they're different stories. And as we read the story, you can't help but think about the present and about what is happening right here and now and how the, the war of story has never come to an end. And I don't think it ever will. Yeah. I mean, it was crazy because I would go to these archives going through these 18th century journals. You go to, you go to England, you get them out of a box and they are crumbling and disintegrating and the leather bound on top is just, you know, it just, you know, just blows with dust as you open them and you have to lay a pillow under them and you do, and you open them up. Um, and, and I would begin to read and learn about and document what had happened on this expedition and after the expedition. And then, yes, I would come home and I'd flip on the TV and I would um, read the newspaper and I'd hear these things like alternative facts and uh, allegations, so-called fake news. And then I would go back to the archives, I'd read these documents and I'd think, wow, they're having this fight over who would actually get to tell the history and the empire itself isn't really happy with that history, maybe wants to tell a different history. And then I would go back home and I would read the paper, flip on the news and they're saying, oh, well, we're not going to teach this book in school because that book's going to get banned and that part of the past we don't like. And, and, and uh, yeah, the, you know, the, you know, the, the present shapes the future and the, past shapes the present and um and and this past you know shapes the present and the world and informs it and you know the hope in telling these stories is you learn from them you know one of the things that struck me after i read this book was there's one adventure that's really incredible and kind of mind-boggling that isn't in the narrative, and that's your adventure discovering all these documents. You were just talking about this, and this is one thing I wanted to ask you about, is reading these journals. I mean, did you get your hands on uh, uh, Bulkley's original journal to see that handwriting? Were you, did you find yourself like trying to read like 200-year-old handwriting? <laughs> So for a lot of the log books and the muster books and the correspondence, you're reading this very old archaic English and, you know, the Fs are Ss. 
and I could find reprints um, in their authentic form uh, of a lot of the actual journals. Bulkley's had some later reprints. So his, I did not actually touch kind of the original text of his journal, but some of the journals that were kept on this expedition, yes, you can go and you can touch them and, and read them. You know, what's also remarkable too is just as a feat of scholarship, taking all these diverging stories and putting them together in what is one of the most incredible, grossing, 250-page, page-turning thrillers that I have ever held in the, my hands for a brief time as I was just flipping the pages incredibly fast. Talk about, you know, what you had to do was resolve all these kind of conflicting points of view. And I think what's interesting is that you, as a writer, you are well quite adept at using the elements of fiction to uh, turn facts into like really incredible stories. You have a uh, an eye for seeing the story in a series of facts. And how does that work for you? Do you see the story, like does that focal point happen immediately or do you have to funnel through the facts to like create a, a lens to, to understand where the story points are? Yeah, the first, you know, you begin just like a, a, a vacuum cleaner, just trying to suck up facts. You just, wherever they, you just go wherever they find, whatever trove. And then within those documents, you're trying to find the most interesting details. And, you know, those little stones become part of a mosaic. So as you get these details, you begin to extract them. And you create these outlines that create this kind of mosaic or a picture and then once you've done a level of research, then your brain starts to think about, okay, what is this narrative? Where is it going to go? You don't know everything because it's a journey, um, but you start to have some thoughts. And then there are a couple key things that, you know, especially with this book, you're trying to find a structure that is not arbitrary. You know, you could, you know, just as they're all telling a story, I'm going to be telling their story and I'm going to show and try to render as best I can then. But nonetheless, I am an author shaping the story you are reading. And this, for me, that structure, that shape is so essential. And so I decided to tell this account from the warring perspective of three members of the wager, the Captain David Cheap, um, the, the, the gunner, John Bulkley, who, you know, unlike the captain, he was a very skilled seaman and instinctive leader, but because he couldn't come from the aristocracy, you know, he never would have been a leader, a commander of a warship in that day. And yet on the island in that democracy of suffering, uh, there is a class struggle that plays out between him and the captain. And then the third perspective is from the young midshipman, John Byron, uh, who was only 16 years old when the voyage set sail. And he will go on to become the grandfather of the poet, Lord Byron whose poetry is greatly influenced by what he referred to as my great granddad's narrative. And by structuring the book and the shifting perspectives, you're showing how each one of them are shaping their story. And you get to compare and contrast. You see what one leaves out, what one puts in, how they're each trying to emerge as the, as the hero of their tale. And so I did that because, you know, it gets to this fundamental theme of storytelling. 
but also by only, I think you can get close to the truth by seeing this interplay of each of their accounts. Each of them are giving a partial account. They're not so much lying, is that they're kind of coloring the facts. They leave out certain facts that make them look bad and they emphasize the ones that make them good. Each of their stories is colored by their self-interest. So when you see them all and you see them playing off each other, hopefully you get uh, closer to the truth. And then that structure also is so important because it is what ultimately gives the story its inherent suspense and why I hope it has a certain propulsion because their lives had enormous suspense. You know, when you sit down on a voyage like they did, you know, you begin with hopes and expectations or whatnot, ambitions, romance, and then things begin to go to hell. And every day they do not want to, they do not, they do not know what is going to happen. They don't know, you know, are they going to get hit by a tidal wave? Are they going to capsize? Are they going to starve? How are they ever going to get off the island? So by telling it from their perspective, just in the simplicity of chronological order, you are experiencing the spence and the drama that they themselves went through. And for me, that is the important way to tell history is not merely with the hindsight, the arrogant hindsight of a detective. But what was it like for the people living inside of history? It gives like it's like having two cameras to give a three or three cameras to give three point view. Uh, the the it's Rashomon. Yes, yeah. Well, it's like a crime scene, you know. And, and it's like you hear one witness, and then you're like, okay, I know what happened. Then you hear the second witness, you're like, huh. And then you heard the third witness, and you go, ooh, what's what's really going on here? And that's where. The mystery and the intrigue, intrigue begins, and that's when the detection begins. And, you know, in many ways in this account, I sort through these narratives and I render them as accurate as I can. I try to help you understand each one of these people, both when they do good, but also when some of them do bad. And um, so you understand them. But ultimately, I leave it up to the reader to also uh, um, interpret and to provide that final judgment which is history's judgment you, you know one of the things that that's so interesting about this book is that it begins with you know two great powers of the day uh spain and england in conflict and you you think of you know the kind of world changing conflicts that we're encountering even as we speak and yet you realize how absurd these conflicts are because this, what Spain and England were fighting was called the War of Jenkins' Ear. <laughs> it's right. Yeah, no, it's an absurd name. And, and you know, another central theme of this book is not just about the stories people shape, but also the stories nation shape and, and manipulate and manufacture. But, you know, but it's also, and it's about the folly of imperialism. And, oh. um <laughs> Very much so, right? And you know the the Gulf of Jenkins there, which is this absurd name that the war is given, and it's kind of it's not very well remembered anymore. But it became known as the War of Jenkins there. Well, where did that come from? Well, it came from a story that circulated about a, a British captain of a merchant ship whose vessel was boarded in the Caribbean, and some Spanish forces had cut off his ear. 
something probably did happen, but that incident actually happened years ago and I've been completely forgotten before the war. And some you know, imperialist interests who were seeking to expand um, the British Empire and break the hold of its rival Spain's um, colonial hold over Latin America seized on this story and ginned it up and there were cries not just for an eye for an eye but an ear for an ear and so it was uh, begun the war of jenkins ear you know one of the things i think you do really effectively is to lay out these themes in what is without doubt one of the most action-packed big scene set piece uh filled stories I have ever read um you the from the the launch of the of the ships which is just plagued with troubles and you know it, the, these ships were at the time very high technology they were you know the equivalent of our nuclear ships but the, the launches were just like plagued with problems and they got stuck behind their own boats you you do a great job of taking the themes the abstract themes and turning them into a really interesting action and so talk about like creating set pieces of action out of bits of of history and journals so that it reads like some like you know a script for a movie that was the other thing i as i read this book i just said my god this is like the the summary of the best parts of any every single sea movie I have ever seen in my entire life. Yeah, you know, so I, I have a you know a belief that history doesn't need to be boring. <laughs> you know, history is ultimately a story and seizing on stories and telling or rendering stories. And my hope always is, you know, I don't begin with the themes. I find the story. What is the griffing story? And then I figure out what the themes are that grow out of that story. And so I'm always focused on that through line of what is the tale I'm telling? What is the story I'm following? And this is an odyssey and a quest and a disastrous one at that with many twists and turns. So I'm following all that. But there are these kind of larger themes, but you don't want like too much context or, you know, a dissertation to take away from the inherent drama. And so you kind of layer in these themes. And I actually really believe you can have people end up wrestling with history, reckoning with these much larger themes of imperialism, and racism, and uh, manufacturing truth and the stories we tell. Um, if you get them just to be swept away into a story, they will end up reading about these things and inevitably they will have to encounter these things and dwell on them. But if you just said, well, this is a polemic or some, you know, uh, textual book about, yeah, I don't know how many people, you know, you're going to lose people. Um, and I'm always conscious also of my own reading pleasure. I like to read a book that moves. I like to, I like to get, I like a, I like a movie that get, I like a book that gets the hooks in me and, you know, I want to know what's going to happen. You know, what was so interesting for me is I, as I was reading this book, I like to listen to a little bit of background music when I read mm -hmm. books. And so I, I got part way through this book. I think I want to listen to something. There was a, CD I bought 40 years ago um, 
done by a keyboardist who had worked with uh, Mike Oldfield on Tubular Bells. He decided what he wanted to make was a musical setting for The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a really an enjoyable kind of thing. It's a bunch of kind of uh, sea shanties uh, redone with pianos and uh, organs and a couple of synthesizers and an actor narrating uh, the poem over the 40 minutes of its running time. And so I'm listening to this and then I get partway into this book and read that some of the events that you talk about are the inspiration for that poem. And I thought that was yes. so interesting. How but much literature? Well, how much yeah. literature comes up out of this? I'm thinking of, of both the pieces of literature you mentioned that come up out of this real journey. Yeah, well, you know, we talked at the very beginning about this is a story about stories. And what is so interesting is stories kind of radiate out and they kind of take on different forms. Um, And stories also shape us. So, you know, when the seamen are coming around Cape Horn at the tip of South America and their ships are just being bandied about like rowboats and they're in what they refer to as the perfect hurricane, and their sails are blown out and their men are dying of scurvy. What are they dreaming of? What are they fantasizing about? They keep dreaming about what they refer to as the island of Robinson Crusoe, which is this island that's actually, the, Robinson Crusoe was inspired by a true story about a seaman who had been left on this little island off the Chilean coastline, who then about a year or so later ends up getting rescued and the captain reported the true story about what had happened to him in his logbook and that story kind of became the seed that helped inspire Defoe's novel and so already you see this conflation even in their own minds of fact and fiction John Byron who we talked about whose own writing would influence uh, his grandson the poet Lord Byron's work in Don June he had read Robinson Crusoe so, you know, and, and one of the reasons he had gone to sea was he had read all these kind of romantic tales of adventure. So he thought he was going to live this adventure at sea. So you see both how stories are shaping these individuals, propelling them onward. And, you know, at that moment of near death, when they're coming around Cape Horn, they're kind of mingling something that is a story that had a seed in truth, and then it become fictional. And that's where they want to get to in real life. Um And then the stories and the accounts that these seamen would ultimately tell and shape would radiate out into society. So they shape their story. And then, you know, these would be read by philosophers like Rousseau and Voltaire. Charles Darwin carried one of these accounts on the on the voyage of the Beagle with him. He talks about in his diary. They would influence Herman Melville, who quotes and cites them uh, in one of his novels. Uh, Later, Patrick O'Brien, when he was still very early on in his career as a novelist, he drew and did a fictional story that was partly based on the wager disaster. It was before he began his more masterful series based on, uh, you know, like Master and Commander. But, um, and there was even a character in that early novel called John Byron. So there is this, you know, th- these are stories that, uh, you know, are radiating out and being shaped and, and distorted and influencing um, in so many different ways. It's like dropping a pebble and just watching it ripple out. You know, one of the things you do incredibly well is describe the the scenes of the ships in the sea and things deteriorating. 
did you yourself end up trying to sail around the Horn? You can actually do that now, I guess, on cruises. Yeah, on cruise ships. So I actually visited in Portsmouth, uh, an 18th century vessel that's still there. It's actually Nelson's ship that he won the you know the Battle of Trafalgar on um, to try to get a sense of what it was like in one of these vessels. That's a slightly larger warship at the same period. And just to see, you know, how they lived, the, you know, sleeping by the cannons, how these vessels were these, you know, lethal instruments for battle, but also the homes for hundreds of seamen packed together, living side by side. And I then also, I didn't go around the horn, but I did make a journey to Wager Island. Um, and I went, I started out from Chilliway Island, which is to the north of Wager Island, about 350 miles. I'd found a Chilean captain who could take me there. And we went on this 350 mile journey um, in this little boat that was wood heated. And uh, there are no cruise ships that go to Wager Island. And there are, uh, it was, you know, wood heated and, and uh, you know, we would stop to get glacial water, um, you know, using a, a hose to fill the, fill the boat. Uh, for days and days, we didn't see another ship or human being. Um, and then eventually we began by going through these channels, which are actually very peaceful because they're sheltered by the islands along the coast of Patagonia. But at a certain point to get to Wager Island, which is located in what is known as the Gulf of Sorrows, or some prefer to call it the Gulf of Pain, the captain said, well, we've got to go out into the ocean now. You know, we no longer could be sheltered in these channels. And so we head out into the ocean and it gave me a real glimpse of those terrifying seas. Our little boat was just tossed about left and right. I had to just sit and huddle down on the ground. I couldn't stand or I'd break a limb to pass. Well, first of all, I, I was taking about every seasick medicine possible. And then um, uh, to pass the time, I listened to Moby Dick <laughs> on, a, on an audio recording. Uh, but eventually we did make it through uh, the Gulf of Pain and, we got the way Island. You know, uh, what's amazing too about this book is the, the, it contains within it all the prototypical sea adventures. We have the sea voyage through the storms through, I, I mean, when a, a chief's ship, the, the wager is going down through and going through uh, around the tip. I mean, those scenes are just amazing. So you have the, that kind of sea voyage the, the fury of the seas aspect, then just when you think, uh, I'm just thinking, my God, how can this book get more wilder? They end up and they have a castaway story. And then that castaway story becomes a, a Lord of the Flies kind of, you know, uh, 12 angry men. <laughs> yes, yes. It becomes like, you know, it, what's amazing is like they go on this voyage and, you know, they, First, they, they end up battling these seas around Cape Horn, you know, these, this, what they call that perfect argument with these just gigantic waves and the boats are just being battered and the sails are blown out and they don't know what their longitude is because they didn't have clocks back then. So they couldn't measure it. So they have to rely on dead reckoning, which is essentially informed guesswork and a leap of faith. So they never even know quite where they are on the map and they're always, you know, and then the wager comes around and the ships all get separated and the wager ends up 
having its longitude they had misestimated their longitude by hundreds of miles they are smashing into these rocks uh, off the coast of patagonia chile and yes they get to that island and they hope well maybe now we'll find salvation right maybe now our, our all our trauma will be over and instead that island just turns out to be desolate and barren and windswept and cold and raining or sleeting constantly and they can find virtually no food and well, one British officer later described, compared the island to a place where the soul of man dies in him. And after visiting it there myself, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I can understand why your soul might die in you after a few days. And, um, uh, and that island will become this kind of laboratory that will test the human condition under very extreme circumstances. And it inevitably reveals their hidden nature and both the good and the bad and ultimately descends into a Hobbesian state, this real-life Lord of the Flies. You know, the, the characters you create in, in this book, I, it's almost, it's, it's very difficult for me when doing this interview to, to say book and, and stop myself. I have to stop myself from saying novel because it, it feels it has that same kind of crisp reality of a, of a novel, yet even while you're using, you know, you're quoting sources and stuff within the book and i think it's a really incredible talent but um john bulkley is and and, and john bulkley byron and the captain what an amazing set of voices and visions did you have like a different like whiteboards just peppered with stickies or something to to keep the track of how all these characters were created and where you were getting your sources I uh, you know, I do it through outlines. So yes, you have these very, you have these outlines laying out. And then, you know, when you would get to a chapter or a scene or a section of the book, you then create an outline where you are actually, you know, melding or or you want to make sure you have each of their points of view. So you would, you know, so then you, you know, you could have each of all three versions or two versions, whatever it might be of a, of a scene. I would kind of alternate and flip into, uh, into a scene, but yeah, they are all these, they are so distinct, you know, cheap with somebody, you know, all, all he ever wanted to do was be a captain on this voyage. He finally gets his crown and he becomes captain of a ship. And then he gets on this Island and he is just desperate to maintain remain a captain and he is very brave he's kind of compelled by these principles of duty and loyalty and the pursuit of glory um, but he's also stubborn and he's rigid and he's volatile and he's insecure about his power and you have someone like john bulkley who's very devout you know he's the one person who's always kind of you know praying and talking about religion um, and he kind of sees the journey and the voyage when he begins almost as a way to get closer to himself and to God but he is also somebody who is you know cunning smart genius came from you know the lower to middle class but is highly literate when you read his journal highly literate quoting poetry and um, and had a very modern prose style. He wrote the way his character is, which is just like a bullet. And, um, and, and yet we don't even know what Byron looks like because unlike the others, he couldn't, you know, he, he couldn't afford Joe you know, back at home to have had a portrait painted of him. He didn't come from that, that class and means. 
and he is determined and willful to survive and for him you know the central question is you know is it a sin to want to live and how far will you go to want to live and on that island you know he finally you know you know the begins to emerge as this kind of commander or leader, something he could never have done on a ship. Um, and then we talked about John Bulkley, but I mean, John Byron, but John Byron is, you know, in many ways, this kind of innocent eyes because he was so young when he went and he has to come of age amid the horrors unleashed by the elements and also by his shipmates on the island. And in many ways, he is our ears and eyes onto this bewildering world. You know, one part, one scene that just struck me as such a powerful scene was the scene when Bulkley and the the Bulkas or of the um, refugees are escaping from the island and they're navigating through uh, the passage, the Straits of Magellan, and the only guide they have are the story. <laughs> Yes. That yes. Bulkley has read. And, and as Bulkley is navigating, he's doing half of by longitude or half of by latitude? latitude. Yeah, latitude. Yeah, latitude, latitude. Yep. latitude. And they would guess, they would guess their longitude, but latitude they could determine. And the other half of his navigation is by story, by yes. virtue of, of having read the story of someone else who went through there. And he does it successfully. And I'm thinking... This is like an absolutely, it's a literal vision of the power of story. Yeah, he is, he, they have this book on the island. Captain had originally got it. And they, on ships, they would often bring chronicles of other, um, you know, sea voyage, from other sea voyages. They were essentially like log books or journals. And they would bring those with them because they were a source of information for possibly navigation. So when they end up getting shipwrecked, they, the captain ends up bringing uh, one of these um, log books or journals that have been published, you know, with him by a man named Narborough, who had passed through um, the Strait of Magellan, can't remember now when, but before them. And, um, you know, he kind of detailed his journey. And so, yes, Bulkley is consulting this, you know, they don't have reliable charts, but he has this account. And so what he's doing is he'll read what Narborough described seeing, and then he would be, you know, trying to observe to see if on the terrain, he could find a similar, you know, point of location. And it really is a remarkable feat of navigation. You know, also, having gone read through amazing sea voyage through stormy seas, Lord of the Flies style uh, encampment on a, on a remote island. Amazingly, it's 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 frankly almost unbelievable that both parties, two different parties, return. And when they return, Bulkley is so smart. You call them a genius, and I would agree because the first thing he does, one thing he does, is he guards his journal taken contemporaneously with his life and there are attempts to actually remove it and steal it and he publishes it with the idea to make sure that he has to get his story out there first and popular with the people he understands that yeah he does and um you know back then you know just like on the island where like could he become a commander back then when when 
captains or lieutenants, you know, people, officers, gentlemen return from a voyage, people of the upper class usually, you know, it was sort of prerogative to sometimes publish their narrative of their journey, you know, their voyage. Um, but Bulkley was just a gunner. This was not really done. This was kind of a taboo. And he knows that he writes in his preface, um, you know, why can't I tell my story? You know, what, what, what I was there, I saw, what, you know, what precludes me from doing what others do? And so he wants to get his story out first and so that his story will prevail. And he is also so kind. He was a compulsive diarist. So even though we don't know what he looked like, we really know his innermost thoughts. Um, and what's so interesting, as you were saying, is even on the island, when they are starving and, you know, you know, many of them are dying, he is keeping notes, conscious that if they ever get off that island, they're all going to, whoever gets off that island is going to probably face a court martial and they're going to be held accountable for whatever alleged crimes they may have committed. So he is shaping his story even before he gets back to England. And it's great because they had they had salvaged from the wreck some paper and quills. So like on these scraps of paper while they're on the island, they're having petitions and petitions are being signed and, you know, by the people, you know, they are trying to create an unassailable story that will withstand the attrition of a court martial. Um, so yes, he is conscious and sees ahead. And so, yeah, he is, he is building and creating and shaping his story um, all along. Speaking to the, the epigraph again, every man considers it, himself the hero of his own story. <clears throat> One of the things I think that you do remarkably well is in these three stories and these three characters, you're very balanced. You see the the you know the positive attributes of everybody, including Cheap, who who does whose actions to a certain degree lend him a, a incline him towards villainy. But in the end, we really understand and empathize with the choices he was forced to make because he was not dealt the best hand. And he, was was, dealt, he was dealt a terrible hand. He was dealt a really terrible hand, yes. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, you know, one of the things by telling that story from that structure where you are alternating perspectives, so each time you're telling it from one of their perspectives or relying on their journals and they're, you know, they're, you know, what's going on inside them with their torments and their dreams and like you understand them, you know, as my job is never to absolve them. It's, it's never to, um, you know, to exculpate them, but it is to render them as fully formed human beings and to at least understand them. And this is a story not about pure good and evil. It's about human beings who are deeply fallible, who placed under these circumstances, sometimes do acts of heroism and gallantry and sometimes commit acts of brutality so um you you and and i also think there's something else that was more on my mind than like judging them per se um even though i would recoil sometimes at things she did obviously but i you i think inevitably you have to ask yourself this question which is who would you have been on that island 
You know, would you have been cheap? Would you have been Bulkley? Would you have been Byron? You know, whose side would you have taken? Would you have, you know, sacrificed yourself for others? Would you have worked together? Would you have been selfish, brutal? What would you have done to survive? And I don't think we really know the answer until we're placed in those circumstances. So the fact that we can understand them is because I think there's a small part of us is like, who would we have been? Thank you so much. You know, uh, a having written this, uh, talk about your own adventure in terms of, you know, having gone through all these journals and put all this together. Uh, I like you just as a writer, this is a really interesting project because I think for you, a lot of your influences are literary. I, there's a lot of Faulkner in here. If I, yes, if I yeah. didn't make, don't miss my guess. So yeah. talk about, you know, using the tools of fiction to create a more real reality. Yeah. So, I mean, I spent obviously all my time with, you know, documents and in archives and correspondence and sea logs or and books and naval historians. So, you know, that is kind of what you're doing. So you're 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 spending much of your research is with facts or trying to excavate facts, like an archaeologist, I guess is I don't know if that's a good analogy, but in any case, you're excavating facts, you're not imagining them. I actually have a terrible imagination. I was you know, when I look at it in a I'm like, how do they imagine this stuff? And that's not my imagination. Rather than imagining, I am just digging for what I know is there and I just have to find it and extract it and distill it. What is the truth? And, and, and find the gems that are buried. Um, but I read a lot of fiction and for pleasure, I read fiction. And, you know, when I apply, so I am very meticulous about facts and I have hire my own fact checker and I do my own fact checking first. So I really want to be to the best of my abilities, you know, with my fallibility, but the best of my abilities to, to always hew to the facts. Yet you can apply certain techniques of fiction to uh, as you tell these true stories. And what do I mean by that? Well, rather than it just being kind of a recitation of facts, this happened, this happened, this happened. Well, who were the people involved? You know, what was their lives like? So right away, it's like, you're suddenly telling the story through people who actually experienced it. It's no longer these desiccated facts. It's actually these souls that are going through this story. So you focus on the subjects. Who were they? What were their dreams or illusions? What are their weaknesses? And right, that is the root of all fiction is kind of rooted in character. So you root your nonfiction in real life characters. Um, and then you try to find the most vivid details in their journals, details that create images in our minds or in our letters, um, or you go to Wager Island so you can describe it. You witnessed it. You can describe how the trees are all laying on top each on top of each other because of the wind, that they look like hurtling sprinters. Well, that's how you create an image. So you're looking to tell a story through words that is visual, that creates and, and sparks images in the mind. And you're even looking for dialogue. 
But rather than inventing the dialogue, you're looking for their accounts where they are quoting speech when they're, you know, there's a wonderful scene in, in, in Bulkley's journal that he, you know, details and documents where there, he's on this kind of collision course with Captain Cheap. And he has this long, you know, conversation and exchange between them. And that's just the gift, the goal, because you can hear their voices or at least the way vocally render their voices. I'm always clear who's kind of telling the story at each point. Um, so you you have an ear for dialogue. So you, you, you're you taking these techniques or the things you see in fiction and yet you are doing it with real life. And, and so there is a fundamental difference. It is also why these books take so darn long because to do that, they just involve so much research and so much fact checking. And, you know, because you can't just be loose. You can't be loose with a fact. You know, they're like, wow, is this fair? Is this right? Do I have a source for it? What is the source? And so that is the, that is why these are kind of long quests and why, you know, I only write a book every five years these days. <laughs> Thank you so much. I've been speaking with David Grand. His new book is the wager thank you for joining me david this is my pleasure thank you so much i appreciate it you're listening to the agony column news report featuring interviews phone interviews reports from live book events and festivals and conversations with readers you can find additional news interviews book reviews and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom slash agony.